This is Jeff Young, the Catholic Foodie at CatholicFoodie.com, and you're listening to episode 120 of the Catholic Foodie, What Would Jesus Eat? Welcome, folks, to the Catholic Foodie, where food meets faith. I'm your host, Jeff Young, and today we're going to ask the question, what would Jesus eat? Have you ever been curious about the typical diet back when Jesus walked the earth? I have, and today we'll discover what it was like back then. In our discussion today, I am certain that we will find that bread was a very important part of Jesus' diet. And with that in mind, I want to share a recipe with you today for whole wheat bread. Sarah Reinhardt finds Mary in baking grease and reflects on the intimacy of her kitchen in this week's Mary in the Kitchen. All this and more right here at The Catholic Foodie, where food meets faith. As we start this episode, I want to thank our sponsor, DivineOffice.org. You will find all things Liturgy of the Hours at DivineOffice.org. Of course, the Liturgy of the Hours is the official prayer of the Church, and it is prayed several times a day by priests, religious, and laity all around the world. It is a treasure trove of grace and a rich education in prayer. If you have never prayed the Liturgy of the Hours, I encourage you to give it a try. And DivineOffice.org makes it very easy to do so. You will find the hours available there in text format and also in audio, and you can subscribe to the podcast version or download the iPhone or iPad app. There's even an app for your iMac or MacBook. But the most important thing you will find at divineoffice.org is a living community of prayer. So come, join us in prayer at divineoffice.org. You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Sonny, true love is the greatest thing in the world. Except for nice MLT, mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomatoes ripe. They're so perky. I love that. Hi, uh, Jeff. Uh, this is uh, Joe Sales from uh, Waterloo, Ontario. Um, I just wanted to say that I, well, first of all, I like uh, the Catholic foodie. I hope you guys, I hope you and your family are doing well. The podcast seems to be going great. Um, I wanted to answer a question. Where does food meet faith, faith in your life? Well, this uh, for me, food meets faith when I gather around the dinner table at the end of the day with my wife in prayer. So it's a simple answer. That's, that's where food meets faith. For me, um, I'm sure I could probably come up with a few other answers as well, but um, I believe family, food, prayer is important. And so thanks again, Jeff, for all that you do, and uh, God bless. Take care. Bye. Joe, thank you so much for calling in. I agree 100%. There's something very special about gathering around the table to share a meal with loved ones. I'm sure that sociologists would explain that humans developed this way of eating meals over the millennia 
for reasons of convenience and security and all that good stuff. However, I think that meals are God-designed. I believe that it is quite easy to see God behind the idea of meals just by looking at the role that food plays in the Bible. Even with just a casual reading of both the Old and New Testaments, it is evident that meals were always, always communal in nature. Only on rare occasions do we find anyone in the Bible eating alone. Like um, Elijah in the desert that time, remember? He was enjoying the bread that the ravens brought him. <laughs> but even then, I mean, he wasn't really eating alone, was he? He, he was eating with the birds. So. <laughs> so meals are certainly God's idea. And personally, I believe that we all need to do a bit more lingering at the table when we dine. Hmm. That might be a good topic for another episode of The Catholic Foodie. <laughs> Again, Joe Sales, thank you so much for the call. Folks, you can find Joe on Facebook by searching for Joe Sales Media. If you would like to leave voice feedback just, uh, just like Joe did, all you have to do is call 985-635-4974 and leave a message. 985-635-4974. It's super simple. And I would love to hear from you. Please do give me a call and let me know where food meets faith in your life. I'd like the chef salad, please, with the oil and vinegar on the side and the apple pie a la mode. Chef and apple a la mode. But I'd like the pie heated, and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side, and I'd like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real. If it's out of a can, then nothing. Not even the pie? No, just the pie, but then not heated. Uh-huh. I'll have what she's having. Have you ever thought about the kinds of foods that Jesus ate? What about how he ate? I mean, what were the meals like? You know, they didn't have forks. They didn't have salt and pepper shakers. They didn't have refrigerators either. So what was eating like 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked the earth? You know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is not the what, it's the how. How did Jesus eat? As you can imagine, life back in Israel 2,000 years ago was quite different than it is for us today. I mean, when you think about it, food was life, kind of like here in South Louisiana. <laughs> you know, it's said that uh, down here, we don't eat to live, we live to eat. Well, that's kind of the way it was when Jesus walked the earth not because folks lived in a city full of restaurants that uh, provided jazz brunches on Sunday or where just about every family you knew made red beans and rice on Mondays just because that's what you're supposed to do. No, they didn't live in a country either where Food Network pumped out food-related content 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No, people lived to eat 2,000 years ago simply because the work of feeding a family was an all-day affair. It took up all their time. You know, bread was certainly a staple in Israel back then. Uh, the women would rise early to grind whole grains of wheat in order to make the daily bread. They did not have faucets, so water had to be drawn from the village well and carried back home on one's head or hip. I mean, think about it. You know, they needed water for cooking and washing and drinking. I mean, food and eating took lots of time and lots of work. You know, compare that, though, with us today, you know, with our life today, if we don't want to, we don't have to think about food preparation at all. We can pick it up uh, from a drive-thru. 
or by frozen dinners that we just throw in the oven a few minutes before it's time to eat. Our water comes out of a faucet or some sort of plastic jug, and relatively few of us actually bake our own bread today. I mean, it just takes too long. So for the most part, we buy bread that is already baked. Certainly, our life today is strikingly different from that of Jesus and his contemporaries 2,000 years ago. But what about the act of eating? You know, what about the meal? You know, again, for us today, meals are often eaten on the go. We hit the drive-thru or we grab something from the fridge on the way out the door, but that is not how it was in Jesus' time. You know, meals were really an event, a coming together of family and friends, an encounter. Back then, people would linger at table. Eating was not rushed. Meals were accompanied by conversation, and really the duration of the meal also allowed for good digestion. We didn't scarf everything down. <laughs> we you know, took our time. Uh, we just weren't rushed, you know? But life happened around the table. It was an event. One of the things that amazes me is that for thousands of years, families had to stop three times a day and come together to eat. There's a natural rhythm here. And it shouldn't be shocking to acknowledge that the sense of family and family bonds were stronger back then, very different from our experience today. And that's why I loved getting that feedback from Joe Sales about where food meets faith in his life. He's absolutely right, you know. I mean, food meets faith around the table with our loved ones. And God is a part of that. That is what's so cool. God is a part of that. Here's another thing about the how of meals in Jesus' time. They acknowledged God. God God was seen as the great provider, right? Everything good that they had, every blessing came from the hand of God. And the same is true for us. But the people back then acknowledged it. It was part of their culture, kind of built into their society. They lived that reality. You know, we live in a time that is dominated really by independence and self-will, a time when we praise the self-made man. Even though we don't recognize it, often we think that we bring blessings into our lives, but we fool ourselves. 2,000 years ago, folks had a harder time fooling themselves simply because life was hard. But before meals, they blessed the Lord who had blessed them so abundantly, they gave thanks. You know, over the last 2,000 years or so, there have been many, many prayers written that give thanks to God for the blessings of food and family. Here and Covington, Louisiana, we have our own tradition in our family. You know, we make sure to give thanks and to ask the Lord's blessing before every meal. Now, we're working on integrating an after-meals prayer, too, at the end of our meals. You know, for years, I gave thanks after my meals in the seminary, but that is not a tradition, sad to say, that carried over into family life, probably because we, too, are always on the go. But this is something that we're trying to implement now. So, we've talked about the how of meals in the time of Jesus. Now, what about the what? You know, it might be tempting to think of people at that time as being poor and hungry. I mean, after all, there were no fast food restaurants, no Dunkin' Donuts, no grocery stores, and none of our modern conveniences. But you know what? They did have food, and they had good food, too. In the Holy Land, you could easily find fresh fruits, vegetables, poultry, lamb, fish, 
And the city's vendors would sell fried fish, pickled cucumbers, pickled watermelon rinds, cakes made from chickpeas, and grilled meats. Yeah, as I mentioned, bread was a staple food. As a matter of fact, it was referred to as the staff of life. And it took effort to make bread, but the basic ingredients were readily available. Some scholars uh, believe that poor families or poorer families would use barley flour to make their bread, while those who had more money would use wheat flour. And bread took a lot of time for people in this period, right? It took a lot of time for them to make bread. It was a lot of work, especially for the women. If they lived in a city, they either bought their bread from a baker or bought pre-ground flour. But the folks who lived in rural villages had to grind their own grain on grinding stones right before baking. And rural women had to get up three hours before sunrise to grind flour for their families. Wow! <laughs> you know, when they did make bread, they used a, uh, a sourdough to, to leaven it. There was no commercial yeast like we have today. I mean, that, that didn't come along until about the 1800s. It's likely that each family retained a bit of dough each day to be used as leaven for bread the following day. So some families had their own small ovens, but there were also communal ovens in many villages. Lack of an oven, or at least lack of access to a communal oven, was one reason why folks in the cities bought their bread from commercial bakers. But bread was often cooked on a simple metal plate, which yielded a flat bread. And when eating, the bread was broken. It was not cut with a knife. And the bread was also pliable, so you could uh, easily use it as a spoon of sorts when eating. You know, at the time of Jesus, folks probably ate a lot of vegetables. Uh, we know that they ate lettuce and spinach, spinach, beets, kale, radishes, turnips, carrots, artichokes, black kala, leek, onion, garlic, cucumber, watermelon, and squash. Olives were abundant, and they were crushed for oil in addition to being eaten fresh or pickled. And they probably used a lot of herbs, like both dried and fresh, to flavor their food. Herbs like mint and cilantro and parsley and majorum and oregano. They probably used lemons at that time, but most likely used grape wine vinegar for cooking. You know, one interesting thing that they used for flavoring was something called garum or garum, which is a sauce made of fermented fish. It was probably something similar to Worcestershire sauce, which has a base of fermented anchovies, or maybe like an Asian fish sauce or anchovy paste, or even a soy sauce. It was a way to add a bit of saltiness to a dish. Now, fruit was also a very important part of their diet. They ate a lot of dried figs and dates and you know, figs and dates were plentiful, and they were also portable. You can carry them around with you. I guess they were kind of like the original fast food. <laughs> they also uh, made a type of honey or a syrup from dates. They even made wine from dates. That's pretty interesting. And we have evidence of certain fruit trees in that area, such as pomegranate, peach, apple, and pear trees. And they also ate nuts, including walnuts, almonds, carob, and pistachios. And, of course, they drank wine. But the wine at that time was not quite like the wine you can purchase today. It was probably not as strong as ours because they did not use a long fermentation process. They really just didn't have the appropriate vessels for that. So their wine was probably relatively sweet, and they always cut it with water when they drank it. So drinking wine with your meal 2,000 years ago 
was a very different experience than it is for us today. But fish was plentiful too. Uh, There's the Mediterranean Sea. There's also the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, naturally, fresh fish in those areas were available. But smart merchants, clever merchants, also used to salt and dry the fish so that they could be sent great distances too, and they could sell it far away, right? Uh, Lamb, chicken, and beef were all available, but were not eaten in the same way that we do today. I mean, first of all, meat of that kind was not eaten often. Usually meat was reserved for uh, feasts and celebrations. I mean, if you were a bit more wealthy, you might eat meat more frequently. And of course, the priests who worked in the temple, right, they they did eat meat regularly because of all the sacrifice. Then secondly, you know, when folks did eat meat back then, it was, uh, well, the serving size was much smaller than ours today. I mean, think about it. They probably would have an average of maybe four to six ounces of chicken, for instance, uh, as opposed to us. Sometimes we'll eat like a half a chicken <laughs> at a meal. Who knows? Um, so I guess you could say that the diet back then is really very similar to the diet today in that region. I mean, it's basically a Mediterranean diet, except that today there's more meat. And over time, many crops have been introduced to that area uh, that used to not be there, like tomatoes, avocados, and bell peppers, for instance. All those came from the New World. It came from the Americas. So in a future episode, it might be really cool to explore some of the dietary restrictions of ancient Israel. But for now, I want to uh, move on to the next section and give you this really, what I think is my favorite, uh, recipe for whole wheat bread. Oh, you gotta taste this! This is, oh, it's got this kind of, mm, it's burning, melty, it's not really a smoky taste. It, it, it's a certain, oh, it, it's kind of like a, it's got like this boom, zap kind of taste. Don't you think? What, what would you call that flavor? Lightning-y? Yeah. It's lightning-y! Oh, we gotta do that again! Okay, when the next storm comes, we'll go up on the roof. I know what this needs. Saffron. A little saffron would make this. Saffron. Why do I get the feeling it's, it's in, in the, the kitchen. kitchen? As I mentioned in the last segment, bread was has, has often been called the staff of life because it plays a central role in the diet of most cultures. It is the most basic food. And we can draw all kinds of parallels here with our faith. I mean, think about it. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. He was born in a stable and laid in a manger. A manger is a feed trough. As a matter of fact, the English word manger comes from the Latin, and it's very similar uh, to the Italian as well, uh, from the Latin word, which means to eat. So later in his public ministry, Jesus calls himself the bread of life, the true bread come down from heaven. There's just so much that we could say about bread, but today I want to give you a recipe for bread, whole wheat bread to be precise. Now, I have to tell you, not all breads are equal. (laughs) I remember when I was in high school and first heard about Fatima and Medjugorje, and I heard that one of the messages of Our Lady was to do penance, especially to fast on bread and water on Wednesdays and Fridays. And I remember the first few times I tried to fast like that. It was excruciatingly painful. And I later found out why. You see, the most common types of bread that we have here in the States are white bread and whole wheat bread. Sliced sandwich bread, really, that's what it is. It is certainly not as hearty as the kinds of bread that are common in Europe and in other places around the world. Once I learned that, (laughs) fasting became 
a whole new experience and much more bearable. So the recipe I want to share with you today is a whole wheat bread, and uh, it is hearty. It is hearty, but it's not like a real dry, believe it or not. It's not a real dry uh, whole wheat recipe. This one's is got, it's just a really, really good one. Matter of fact, for years, I tried to perfect another recipe, whole wheat bread, one that I had found years and years ago, but I could never make it come out right. And finally, I discovered this recipe. And uh, this one has worked for me every time, and I found it on King Author Flower's website, right? You can get flour uh, from this company called King Author, and it's got they've got lots of stuff on their website. Uh, there's a community section. There's education. They, you can learn a lot about baking and cooking and flowers and everything, uh, different types of flour, all of that uh, on their website, which is at kingauthorflower.com. I'm going to put a link in the show notes here to this recipe, but let me tell you a little bit about the ingredients. You need one to one and one quarter cup lukewarm water, a quarter cup of vegetable oil. Personally, I use olive. A quarter cup of honey, molasses, or maple syrup. I've I've done this with both honey and molasses, uh, and they, they both turned out great. Three and a half cups of King Arthur, Arthur Premium 100% whole wheat flour. Two and a half teaspoons of instant yeast, or one packet of active dry yeast, dissolved in two tablespoons of the water in the recipe. Uh, you need a quarter cup of Baker's Special Dry Milk or non-fat dried milk, and then one and a quarter teaspoons of salt. Now, what you do is in a large bowl, you combine all the ingredients and stir until the dough starts to leave the sides of the bowl. You transfer the dough to a lightly greased surface. Oil your hands and knead it for six to eight minutes or until it begins to become smooth and supple. You may also knead this dough in an electric mixer or a food processor or in a bread machine programmed for dough or manual. And I have done this, by the way, in a bread machine. But there's something about that dough, working that dough with your hands, there's just something so real about that that I, I prefer to, uh, to bake bread, to make bread by hand. So, I mean, the dough should be soft yet still firm enough to knead. Uh, you, you may just have to adjust the consistency with additional water or flour if necessary. So after you knead it, you transfer the dough to a lightly greased bowl or large measuring cup. If you have one that will fit in, you cover it and allow the dough to rise till puffy, though not necessarily doubled in bulk. It's about one to two hours depending on the warmth of your kitchen. Now, what I do uh, when I'm preparing bread here at the house, I will actually uh, put the oven on low for a little while. But while I'm preparing everything and uh, kneading the dough and all of that, I'll, I'll cut it off in enough time in advance so that I'm not going to be baking the bread. But I want the oven warm, not hot, but warm when I stick the dough in there so that it, it aids in the, uh, the rising process. So uh, for an hour, hour, let's say about an hour to two hours, depending on the warmth of the kitchen, okay? Then you transfer the dough to a lightly oiled work surface and you shape it into an eight-inch long log. You place the log in a lightly greased uh, eight-and-a-half by four-and-a-half-inch loaf pan, and we have a few of those here at the house. You cover the pan loosely with lightly greased uh, plastic wrap and allow the bread to rise for another hour to two hours or until the center has crowned about one inch above the rim of the pan. Now, towards the end of the rising time, you want to preheat the oven to 350. 
And you break, uh, break, you don't break the bread. Well, you will break the bread eventually, but you want to bake the bread for 35 to 40 minutes, tinting it lightly with aluminum foil after 20 to prevent overbrowning. All right, now a lot of that is particulars for, you know, you may have a, all ovens are different and all ovens are, you know, mine, I have a very finicky oven and I've got all kind of tricks on how to keep things from burning or sometimes even how to keep myself from burning myself. <laughs> but uh, so you have to kind of experiment. You have to know your oven. But you can tint this after 20 minutes to prevent overbrowning on top. Now, the finished loaf will register about 190 degrees Fahrenheit on an instant read thermometer inserted into the center. And you remove the bread from the oven and turn it out Turn it out onto a, uh, onto a rack. If you have a wire rack, turn it out onto the rack to cool. You can uh, rub the crust with a stick of butter, which will, uh, of course, uh, kind of yield a soft, flavorful crust. And I love just butter is just good. <laughs> butter is just good. Only thing that can trump butter is bacon, and we're going to hear about bacon in just a little bit. But uh, you want to let the, the bread cool completely before slicing. And you store the bread in a, a plastic bag at room temperature. And that's just one loaf right there. This recipe has worked every time I've tried it. I love it. It comes from kingauthorflower.com, and I will put the link in the show notes for you over at catholicfoodie.com. Hi, I'm Junie. And I'm Ray. And this is Mary in the Kitchen with Sarah Reinhardt. <laughs> I found her in a bit of bacon grease. After a breakfast for dinner night of making a mess and enjoying the eggs, our chickens are finally laying and hustling around like a crazy woman. I should clarify, I didn't see Mary in the bacon grease. Not really. It was just a blob in the bottom of the pan, a reminder of the yumminess and an aroma that was lingering in the kitchen. Instead, I saw Mary in the feeding of my family, in the smiles we had as we ate eggs that were only a few days old and that we had gathered with our own hands, in the work I was doing for them, the people I love, I saw her in the amazing fact that I find myself rather enjoying this vocation of wife and mother and chief bottle washer. There's something intimate about my kitchen, and it's more intimate than any other room in my house. If you walk in on me unexpected, you're likely to learn all sorts of things about me. Because I haven't had a chance to clean up the clothes I'm folding on the table, the papers strewn on the counter to remind me of this or that. The book's open to various pages. You'll see dust in a thin layer, no doubt, but you'll also see artwork in progress, thanks to a six-year-old who can't put her markers down for more than a few hours. You'll find a herd of horses in nooks and crannies, because my three-year-old has an ongoing drama with them. There will be baby toys, too, and maybe some Cheerios I haven't quite gotten around to picking up. My kitchen is, in many ways, the manifestation of the inner me. The rational and logical part of me harumphs a bit at that. I'd rather you look in my front room and see the bookshelves, or my office and the work in progress there. But really, the important work gets done in my kitchen. And I think that's why I found Mary there, in the bacon grease. 
My prayer for you is that you find Mary in your kitchen too. And when you do, grab onto her apron string and follow her to her son. Thank you very much, Sarah Reinhardt. I just love the insights that she brings to the show each week. You know, listening to Sarah, I can imagine what it must have been like in Mary's kitchen. I imagine it was very human, but also very heavenly. You certainly inspire me each week with the Mary in the Kitchen segment. And you will find more of Sarah's work, including her recently released Advent book, over at snoringscholar.com. I also want to thank L'Angelus for bringing or for allowing us to use their Ave Maria in the show. You can find L'Angelus over at CajunRecords.com. This is Archbishop Joseph Nauman of the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas, and I look forward to welcoming you here in Kansas City for the Catholic New Media Conference on October the 1st, 2011. Join us October 1st for the fourth annual Catholic New Media Conference. The CNMC is a festive, educational, and international conference focused on evangelization and building community through the use of new media. This year's CNMC will focus particularly on social media and how the church and its institutions can effectively use it. Beginning with hands-on workshops on Friday, September 30th, and continuing with the main program on Saturday with Vatican Radio's Sean Patrick Lovett, the nun blogger Sister Ann Flanagan, Catholic mom Lisa Hendy, and popular Catholic bloggers and podcasters, it'll be a weekend to remember. Details are available at cnmc.sqpn.com. Make sure you're going to Kansas City for the CNMC. Well, this brings us to the end of the show, folks. I certainly hope that you have enjoyed it. I'm looking for voice feedback from, uh, from uh, well, from you. <laughs> I want to hear from you. How does food meet faith in your life? You can call in your voice feedback by dialing 985-635-4974. That's 985-635-4974. You can call that number day or night. Just leave a message, and I'll be able to play that on the show. I look forward to seeing you again next week. Until then, you might want to check out the Catholic Foodie on Facebook at facebook.com slash catholicfoodie. Follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash catholicfoodie. And don't forget to check out the new Catholic Foodie website at new.catholicfoodie.com. And until next time, bon appétit. SQPN, leading the way in Catholic new media.